to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 9. It's only taken us about two, three months to get here, but uh, <laughs> verse 9, and we'll read through verse 13. Uh, just to alert you that uh, people who comment on the book of Romans have different ways of viewing what's happening at this point in, in the book. Um, some, in fact, uh, many, uh, believe that what Paul does is he just starts grabbing little words of command and, and advice to Christians and uh, just assembles. And so basically what you have is just a shopping list of things you ought to do if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I think it's a little more uh, interesting than that, actually, especially as we go through these next uh, four verses or so. Um, if you start at verse 9 and you go through verse 13 and read it in the Greek text, you do not find any finite verbs. There's no verbs there. Look at your English translation, you got a lot of verbs. You know, for instance, it says, let love be genuine or let love be without hypocrisy. Well, the, the words let love be, the let and be part, they're not in the Greek. All the Greek says is love without hypocrisy. That's all it says. And you have to fill in the verb. Now, you can't fill in any verb you want. Uh, you know, it has to make sense. But that's true of the entirety of verses 9 through 13. There are no finite verbs. There's participles. Um, and I tried to explain this at the 830 service, and they all went to sleep. So I'm not going to explain participles <laughs> to you this morning. But, but simply to say that the, the, the parallel of the phrases and the relationship of the uh, words and excuse me for saying it, the syntax of the structure indicates to me that what we... <laughs> oh, I wish I could tell you something. <laughs> anyway, uh, wake your neighbor up. He'll, he'll, he'll enjoy this. But, uh, uh, but the, the way it's structured, it looks to me like what Paul says is genuine love. Now, what does that look like? And then he gives a, a series of descriptive phrases. What does genuine love look like? It, it looks like abhorring evil and, and embracing the good and blessing those who persecute you. You know, th those kinds of, of things. And so that's the way we're going to approach it for these next several weeks. We're looking at what is the meaning of genuine love and how that works out in the life of the believer. So um, that's what we're looking at uh, here. So let's read it together. Um, you, re you read and I'll speak. And, okay. Uh, start at verse 9 through verse 13, and Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to let love be genuine, to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, how thankful we are that you knew us as we were. When we were in absolute rebellion against you, when our hearts cared nothing for you, when the whole direction of our lives was away from you, you looked upon us in our sinful estate and you loved us with the deep, deep love that sent your son Jesus to die in our place. Father, I'm so thankful that you know us intimately and you know that even today we struggle and there is still a great deal of work to be done in our lives before we begin to attain 
even the, the first steps of looking like Jesus. And yet your love is so great, you continue to pour upon us the power of your Holy Spirit and to give us the resources that uh, would enable us to grow in your grace. Father, I'm so thankful that you know where our lives are headed. You know what tomorrow brings. You know where we will be next year, 10 years from now. Father, you know our, our eternal destiny. And your love is so great that you have plotted out each day for our welfare and for our good. Father, we are so thankful that you know us past, present, and future. And taking all that together, you love us with the deep love that you showed to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we love you back. We could never love you as much as you love us, but Father, we love you because you first loved us and by grace have planted it in our hearts that we would give our lives to you to serve you. Father, we pray that our being, our words, our actions, everything about us would simply declare to the world that because of who you are and because of your love, we love you in Jesus' name. The greatest scholars and historians of history have no definitive answer to the origin of the fortune cookie. We're just not sure where the thing comes from. There's about three or four different versions of how we got fortune cookies. and. Uh, uh, they share certain features about it. It seems that the fortune cookie actually originated in Japan. Uh, it was a, a little, wasn't even a sugar cookie thing, but it was a cookie thing with a little, little fortune wrapped inside of it. And, and uh, it came over to the United States on the West Coast in San Francisco. And uh, there was a tea garden in San Francisco in the 1890s. And they served these Japanese fortune cookies. And they became very, very uh, popular. Uh, but then in the 1940s, when the Japanese population was relocated, that's, a, that's the only polite way to put it, but, you know, we're, we're interned during the, the war, um, then the Chinese folks picked up on the Japanese fortune cookie and the Chinese restaurants started serving fortune cookies. Now, the fact of the matter is that people in China don't eat fortune cookies. Companies have actually tried to introduce fortune cookies to China. They won't eat them. You know why? They're too American. <laughs> I looked up where fortune cookies are made. They're all made in the United States. Something like four to five, maybe six billion fortune cookies a year are made. And they're all consumed basically here in the United States. And so what we have is a Japanese creation that is made by the Chinese and consumed by the Americans. Now, this is an international coup of some kind, and we're just <laughs> glad to see that. But, you know, if, you, if you're at a restaurant, a, of a, a, a you know, Chinese restaurant after, after church, and at the end of the meal you get your fortune cookie, you're going to open it up, and it'll have a little fortune in there, and it'll be some innocuous saying. They're not like when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you could run your life off of fortune cookies. That's how good they were, but, but now... And now you look at a fortune, you know, it's hardly anything. But, but you could open up the uh, fortune cookie in a little slip of paper, and it could say something like, let love be genuine. And the whole world would agree. Now, the, 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 if you just take those three words just by themselves, let love be genuine. Yeah, we're all in favor of love being genuine. The world believes in love being genuine. All you need is love. 
Yatta da da da. Okay, yeah. So, so you know, that, that's the idea. You know, we're all in favor of love. Love is great. Let love be real. Let love be genuine. And this is a wonderful thing. But in point of fact, when Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's not writing a fortune for a fortune cookie. When the scripture says, let love be genuine, it has a particular love in mind and a particular reason and a particular mechanism whereby that love becomes a reality. You see, the New Testament oftentimes uses a, a word for love that the rest of the Greek-speaking world of the New Testament era knew nothing about. It was a particular word. It was that word agape. We know it now, and it's sort of almost become an English word. Uh, it's, it's used so commonly, but it was a very unusual word to be used to talk about love back in the ancient Greek era. If I can illustrate it that, this way, you know, sometimes I'll read obituaries, not often, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll read obituaries or, or uh, well, for whatever reason, and, and, and you'll see uh, that people will say things about their loved one, and you can tell they were trying to think of something nice to say, and they couldn't think of anything. And so they'll put down something like, he loved fishing. Nothing wrong with that, but that's, that's it. He loved fishing. Or he loved ice hockey. Uh, ice hockey is a lot easier to love right now than it was yesterday morning, but it's, that, that's another story. But uh, he loved some hobby. He loved, uh, uh, you know, baseball. He loved football. He loved sports, you know. That is a kind of love that the Greeks knew about. It was a love of something that had an appeal to you. It, it reached out and said, I am worth loving. And so you would have a love for that thing or a love for a person because they were appealing, they were attractive. They drew you unto it or to that person. And that was a kind of love. The Greeks used the word eros for that, uh, but it was, it was a, a, a very broadly based term, unlike the English word today. But that kind of love was a love that loved something because it attracted me to it. You read on in the obituaries and sometimes you'll see something like this. He loved his friends. I always liked that one. He loved his friends. I guess there are some folks who are just so mean they hate their friends. <laughs> but uh, by and large, if he's a friend, it's, it's sort of a love thing going on. And, and I understand what they mean by that. It, it's a love for somebody with whom you have a mutual sort of relationship. I, I give you something, you give me something. We have this friendship going on. We have common interests. We share things together. And this was a kind of love that the Greeks would call philos, philos love. And it was, it's, it's, it's an adequate love. It's a great love. It, it, there are places in the, in, in, the, uh, in the Bible where we are told to have a, a philos kind of of love for one another. So there's a, a friendship kind of love, but it's based on the fact that we're each contributing and we're each getting something out of it. And then you'll almost always see, and I, I, I don't uh, uh, criticize this at all, but it'll say things like, she loved her family. She loved her family. And the Greeks had a word for that. Storge was the word. And this word was a word that meant you love someone who's almost assigned to you. You know, they're in the family, and so you kind of like have to love them, and it's really great if you actually want to love them, but you have to love them. The storge kind of love is sort of like, uh, guys, you, you marry her, but you, you end up wedded to the in-laws. <laughs> and glad for it, because it's a wonderful thing and experience to have. Okay, 
So, um, but they, but they, the idea of zestrige is you, you're loving because you're in a group, you're in a, in a society, in a culture, or something like that. And so the Greeks had, had these three ways of, of talking about uh, how love could be experienced and sort of exploring the dynamics of love. But when the New Testament writers wanted to talk about God's love for us in Christ Jesus, none of these words were enough. And they, so they took a very little used word. The Greeks hardly ever used the word agape. They weren't very much impressed with it, but under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we're very impressed with God's agape-type love for us because God's love for us is not based on the fact that we are attractive. It's not based on the fact that he gets something and we get something and it's a mutuality. It's not because he's stuck with us because we're in a group, but God loves us simply because he is love. The love originates with him, not with us. And because of that kind of love, that's the kind of agape love that the New Testament talks about. And that's the word that Paul uses here when he says, let agape, let love be genuine, let it be without hypocrisy. See, for a believer in Jesus Christ, the definition of love is Jesus Christ. He is where we find the meaning of love. He's the one in whom we see love. He is the one who gives us the ability to love in that kind of way. See, once you understand that Jesus is love for us, and you know, what, what is love? Love is Jesus. Then you start to understand that the limits of love are limitless. In other words, Jesus came and he loved sinners. He loved people who were not on the program with God's will. See, the Bible says that when we were hating God, when we were enemies to God, when everything about us was opposed to God, when we didn't want to have a thing to do with what God's will was for us, when we were totally opposed to God, when we were enemies of God, that's exactly when God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son. You see, he shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no limit to the power of God's love. And when you start to understand that that's, that's the kind of love that, that, that we're, we're talking about here, you start to understand that there can't be limits to our love. There can't be boundaries to our love. We cannot look at any other person or any group of persons or any other category of persons. We can't look at others and say, you're outside the orbit of God's love, therefore you're outside the orbit of my love. No, in point of fact, God's love is limitless because God sent Christ and Jesus loved sinners. I mean, just look at how many times he's in the presence of sinners and he's just loving on them. You see, when we look at Jesus, we also come to understand that this love of God, this agape kind of love is all about sacrifice. It's about what we give with no expectation of return. Jesus gave his life on the cross, a sacrifice for us, gave his life that our sins might be forgiven. Now look, you might say, oh, well, he knew we would believe in him someday. You call that a deal? The son of God gives up his life on the cross for us? And what could we possibly ever give him that we have even approach what Jesus has done for us? He gave himself for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And so this love is, is about sacrifice. It's about giving of ourselves to him. Oh, just look how often Jesus paused and gave of himself to others, whether it was a leper calling out from the fringes of society and Jesus would go over, talk to them, touch them, heal them, or whether it was the blind man having 
uh, and, and being forced to, to beg on the street corner, and Jesus would stop the crowd and go over and talk to him and heal a blind Bartimaeus, whether it was a woman with an issue of blood and everybody else had given up on her because her, her condition was medically impossible and incurable, and Jesus stopped everything and said, this is my daughter, and I want you to understand her faith is what's healed her. How many times Jesus stopped and sacrificed his time and gave? And so when you're looking at this kind of love and you realize, you know, love for us, love is Jesus, then let that kind of love be without, without hypocrisy. Now, uh, as, we, as, you, as you look at, at, at this, um, what I want to say to you is that on a really good day, on a really, really good day, if it's early in the morning and I haven't had time to mess it up, I'll get about half of this. On a really good day, I might get half of this. And, and by the way, I'm probably exaggerating how well I do because I just don't want you to know uh, in point of fact. In other words, there's a gap between the love of Jesus and the way we love. There's a tremendous gap between how we love and how he loves. And because of that gap, we fall into sort of defensive mechanisms. We start thinking about, well, if I can't love that way and I, and I can't, then... I'll just divert everybody's attention from that. I'll talk about everybody else's problems. I'll talk about how they're not loving, and maybe I'll, I'll pass on the curve. I'll, I'll just be better than everybody, even though I don't pass the test with respect to the love of Jesus. Or we'll get together and we'll decide, well, you know, it's really unreasonable to expect people to love everybody and to have that kind of Jesus love. After all, you've got to be real. You've got to be practical. You don't want to have people take advantage of you. I mean, after all, there are limits to this love thing. And so we're very comfortable and we kind of support each other with this sort of half-measured love in our lives. You know, now, now, don't worry about it. Everybody's human. You can't quite measure up. But Jesus, when he was talking about this subject... And uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this is found in Matthew 5, 43, by the way. But Jesus said it this way. He said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This, by the way, is very good advice. Always love your neighbor. You never know when you might need to borrow his snowblower if it ever snows again. I'm ready. Okay. You need to love your neighbor because he's right next door and you, and you need to make sure that you've got this resource person and that things are functioning well and all that. But, you know, there are limits to that and people who are opposed to and people that you don't like and people who are doing the wrong thing in your estimation, they don't deserve that kind of love. So love your, love your neighbor but hate your enemies. Jesus said you hear that all the time and we do. We hear it in different ways, in different forms, in different stylizations, but it's basically the message of there's a limit to how much you should love. So love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Jesus said this about that. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that the love of God loves you and you're an enemy of God, you love your enemies. You pray for them. You know. and, and when he says pray for them, he's not saying, oh, Lord, I'm praying for my enemies, that you would send fire and brimstone and, and just fry them like a sausage and just incinerate them. No, pray for their welfare. Pray for the grace and the glory of God to come into their lives. Pray for your enemies, Jesus said. 
because that's reflective of your relationship to the Father as a child of the Father. He loves you, you love that way and extend it around. Jesus goes on to talk about that. We'll just skip down um, to uh, uh, verse 46. Jesus said this, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If I may translate that, if you love the people who love you, big deal. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, the people who work at the IRS are committed, dedicated civil servants who are helping us fund the many ministries and, and services of our government, et cetera. But even folks at the IRS love, their, love their, their, their neighbors and love their friends. That's what he's saying. He says, you, you, you love people, it's easy to love you. He says, so what? Is that a big deal? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Now, there's a very good reason only to greet people you know. It's embarrassing when you can't remember their name. <laughs> Don't even try going out the door. I will not do names today at all. That's it. Forget it. He says, don't even the Gentiles do that? So he's saying, people who haven't been touched by the love of God at all, they'll love their neighbor. The thing is that when God's radical love in Jesus Christ gets a hold of you, you start to love in a way that the world can't imagine. It just doesn't make sense to the world at all. And Jesus summed it up this way. He says, therefore, here's what I want. Therefore, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be ye perfect, just like that. Be perfect in that love. The, the way God loves, that's the way we are going to love one another. Now, that's what we've been finding all throughout Romans um, chapter 12. It's all based on who Jesus Christ is because, after all, you do remember this. You are predestined as a believer in Jesus Christ, foreknown in, in the foreknowledge of God. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You are predestined to look like Jesus. That's the goal. And so Paul says, by the mercies of God, because of everything in Romans chapter 1 through 11, because of this grace poured out in Jesus Christ, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a worship service to God, and a part of that is going to mean this, let your love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Let it be real. You know, when he says without hypocrisy, hypocrisy is what we do when we know there's a gap between who we are and who we profess to be. When there's a gap between what we say should be done and what we're actually doing. You know, we slip into that hypocrisy because we want to look good on the outside even though we know there's not much to look at on the inside. And hypocrisy will start to destroy your relationships because when you know there's a gap between the outside and the inside and it's not measuring up, you don't want anybody else to find that out. And so what you'll do is you'll start criticizing other people and pointing out their faults. You'll start pointing out that they're falling short because as long as I can keep the focus on somebody else, you won't be talking about me. And so hypocrisy is what we do to cover up the gap between who we are and whom we ought to be, who we ought to be. And so um, Paul writes here, he says, let that love, though, be without hypocrisy. Now, that's going to be a hard thing to do because in order to close up that gap, I've got to admit there's a gap in the first place. See, I'm, I, I know none of you ever notice my faults. <laughs> You know, we, we sort of have this conspiracy of silence. I won't talk about yours. You don't talk about mine. There's a tremendous gap. 
between who I should be in Jesus and who I am. But to close that gap, first, you know, understand we're all works in progress here. You know, we're all on a journey. We're all following and learning and growing along the way. And don't let the adversary, don't let the devil dissuade you. Don't let him discourage you. You know, say, see, I, I told you you couldn't do it. Of course you can't do it. God can do it in you, you see. So don't, don't get hung up in, on, on that. Just remember, we're all a work in process, progress. Remember that your, your neighbor and your enemy and everybody in between understand that they're a work in progress too. And the kind of understanding you want for your own life, extend that life to that person as well. But the biggest way to close the gap between who we are and who we ought to be is simply to know Jesus better, to love him more, and to follow him more closely. Now, that's, that's beyond me, folks. That's something I can't do. And it's why we believe in the Holy Spirit. It's why we believe God sends the Holy Spirit, his own presence, into the heart, into the life of the believer to make possible what is impossible for us, to open up our eyes and our understanding to see what we would not otherwise see. It is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to move us out of where we are to where God wants us to be. And so let love be genuine, but it's not just any kind of sappy love that the fortune cookie world would go along with. It's specifically the love of God that we see in Christ Jesus who gave his life for us. And so this morning, I would just give you this challenge. It's a very simple challenge, I think, and very hard to do. This week, take some small step to close the gap. To close the gap. I'm not even going to ask you to close the whole gap because we're a work in progress and it's going to take a while. But you can take a small step. You can go before the Lord in, in prayer and just say, Lord, you know, let your Holy Spirit show me that step. Give me the, the courage to take that step. Give me the power to, to implement that step in my life. But just find some small way in which to close the gap just a little bit between who you are and where God wants you to be in Christ Jesus, particularly with regard to loving one another. And in that way, I think the Father is glorified and the Son is honored. The Holy Spirit is just... Uh, uh, vital and vibrant in our lives. Now, there may be no other place that is so mindful of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us than the table of the Lord. When we come to this table and we, and we understand that Jesus loved us so much that his body was broken for us, that he loved us so much that his blood was shed for us, that we might be brought out of our sin and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And when we come to the table in a few minutes, just come with thanksgiving and praise, but also with that commitment, Lord, by the shed blood of Jesus, by the power of his resurrection, of his broken body, Father, just close that gap in my life, that Jesus would be seen a little bit more. He would be seen in me. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, I thank and praise you for the many ways in which you work to draw us out of our lethargy and out of our sinfulness, out of our self-will. Father, the many ways in which your Holy Spirit works to cause us to be more like Jesus. I pray that we would have the faith and the trust to just yield to that prompting of the Spirit in all things, that you indeed would close the gap and make us look a little bit more like Jesus every day. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.